I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. World Rare Disease Day, an annual international effort to create awareness for rare diseases, will take place February 28th. This year, the theme is on how research brings hope to people living with rare diseases. This seemed like an opportune time to talk to Kenneth Hobby, president of CureSMA, about the organization's effort to drive research for spinal muscular atrophy, the most common genetic cause of death for infants. We spoke to Hobby about CureSMA's strategy for research, the role it played in helping make possible the first approved therapy for the disease at the end of last year, and what other rare disease organizations can learn from its experience. Kenneth, thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for having me today. Given this year's theme for World Rare Disease Day, I thought it would be a, a good time to talk to you about CureSMA and its strategy for funding research. For listeners, though, who may not be familiar with spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, can you explain what it is, how rare it is, what the progression of the disease is, and, and, and prognosis? Okay, I would definitely try. I think, um, as you're saying, though, it's, it's definitely a great time to be talking about this aspect of hope coming from research. We we kind of just turned the corner where all of the hope that we've had from the research efforts finally turned into an approved therapy, and it changed from hope to reality. But it's really been hope for the last 20, 30 years that's come from all the research efforts and the progress that, that's done so much for our community. But we're a community that's about SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. It is the number one genetic cause of death in infants. It's a, a terrible disease. It's a horrible disease that um, has a genetic cause that actually impacts a lot of people. There's about one in 50 people who are genetic carriers of the cause of the disease. But it's then a recessive disease where you have to have two parents come together and then their children, 25% chance of being affected. Um, so it's actually pretty common by the, the one in 50 rate of, of the carriers. Um, it affects about one in 10,000 births. And we think there's somewhere around 10,000 to 15,000 people who are currently affected by SMA in the United States. Um, it is, as I say, a horrible disease. The, the average lifespan is about two years. So it's very quick, very brutal um, in how it shows itself. I think one of the, one of the cruel things from the disease is uh, children are normally born healthy. that they, they don't show any signs, symptoms at birth. But then it quickly shows up by somebody missing certain milestones, not um, sitting up, not rolling over, not lifting, lifting your head up. And then from kind of those milder, slow symptoms, it really progresses downhill pretty quickly um, and starts to impact things like breathing, uh, nutrition and those aspects, which really can have a devastating impact. There is some variability from the disease. While um, it normally shows itself very early in life. There's also some milder forms of the disease which happen a little more slowly or can even show up later in, in adulthood as well. So there's a wide spectrum of the disease, although one of the aspects is this is a disease which has a genetic cause that's the same, even though there's this wide variability in symptoms. Everybody kind of has this same gene and then um, an actual backup gene, just different numbers of the backup gene in their body. Since 1984, CureSMA has invested $59 million into research. 
I would say it appears you got quite a bang for your buck. What did the SMA pipeline look like when you began investing in research, and how has that changed over time? So when we started investing in research, no pipeline at all. I think one of the very early decisions and, and what this organization focused on on the research side was to really investigate the cause of the disease, the genetics, what was really kind of going wrong um, and triggering all the symptoms that we see. And I think we were lucky in SMA in some ways that we were able to drill all the way down and identify the specific genetic cause. It's called SMN1 that's missing in patients that are affected. We also then kind of started to shift from just research, understanding the disease to looking at, well, how do we go about developing practical therapies? And one of the efforts and then the outcomes of that stage was to discover a backup gene that's in the body. Um, it's called SMN2. It's there in the body. It doesn't work quite as well as, as well as it needs to, as well as the main missing gene, but it's there in the body as a target that then we can start focusing on actually developing therapies doing translational research and, and building a pipeline of, of drugs, a lot of them focused on this backup gene. So we started from nothing, um, did a lot of research to find out the cause, targets, and then we worked um, in an area where we actually funded particular therapeutic development programs um, and worked through a process of building a pipeline where we'd start early stage programs and then encourage, incentivize, license programs to our pharmaceutical partners to take those programs on into the clinic where several programs still are. We still have, um, at this point, one approved therapy, five programs that are in clinical trials, um, and then I think we're now at another 12 programs that are in that earlier stage. So it was all about broadening the pipeline as well, having multiple approaches going on at the same time, and different approaches as well, attacking the disease from different um, different angles. You, you also take a, a very holistic approach to, to research. You, you, you describe it as a, a four-pronged strategy that includes basic drug research, drug discovery, clinical trials, and, and clinical care. Uh, this represents the entire continuum. I, I thought we could yep. walk through each of those components and get a sense of the approach and the, the impact you've had. Let's start with basic research. Yes, um, and it definitely is a continuum, as, as you're saying. We've looked at this as it, it passes from one stage to the other, that you you really want to be looking at the whole pathway as well all the way along. So that even when you're doing basic research, and it is academic, it's early research and a lot of different hypotheses, but you're always trying to do that within the, the end goal in mind. That as an organization, we've always had a very practical viewpoint, even to early stage, very kind of open-ended research. So I think that's one, having the whole continuum in mind, uh, even from early stages. And I think the other angle, not just kind of the steps that progress one by one, but doing it in a comprehensive way as well, that we tried to broaden out the research so it wasn't focused on just one particular target, one particular strategy, but in the early stages as well, and, and what we're doing now even with an approved therapy, is looking for alternatives. How do we make sure that we don't put all our eggs in one basket, try one approach over and over, that could hit a roadblock and then we'd be in trouble, but we've tried to build up different approaches, different targets for the disease as well. So very open-ended, very broad in the basic research side, but even there doing it with a practical um, goal in mind at the end. Yeah, how about in terms of drug discovery? Yeah, drug discovery, I think, was where then we tried to translate those. We tried to take ideas that came out from basic research and turn them into practical therapies. I think that area has changed over the years. Um, and you were asking kind of how things have changed with the pipeline. So I think it was about 15 years ago where we really first started the very, the very first practical drug development program. 
And early on, we actually, I think, had to take on a lot of the legwork um, and a lot of the financial um, investment as well to get that first program and the first few going. Um, it was really a stage of getting programs going, but also demonstrating to other partners that you could develop a therapy for SMA, that we had the animal models, that we had the clinical trial outcomes as well in place, that then it wasn't just an idea that a company needed, but they could see the resources were in place as well, that they could come into SMA and have a good chance, a lower risk of developing a therapy. So it was to start programs, but also demonstrate SMA was a good investment for these companies to come in. Uh, over time, that shifted a bit. We've, I think we've made the argument, we've demonstrated that SMA is a good investment to make. And now companies come in earlier and earlier and bring more and more of their resources to bear. And that's really what's expanded the pipeline out to these many programs. Well, when you move to clinical trials, the, the costs take a, a steep yeah. climb. What's the strategy in terms of being most effective in, in deciding what you do in terms of supporting clinical trials? Um, and definitely changed a lot over the years as well. There were a few clinical trials that we actually did fund ourselves. They were for repurpose rather than novel therapies. And again, the, the real idea behind that was to build the knowledge, the outcome measures, the clinical trial centers, the networks, so that we'd be ready for when the novel therapies would come along. Um, the clinical trials, as you're saying, they're out of our scale as, a, as an organization to fund. We may just have been able to kind of fund one, but that's nowhere near enough. We need those partners to come in and fund these very expensive clinical trials. So what we did is, again, demonstrate and build things up a little bit. But our role now is we don't fund clinical trials for any novel new therapies. We're now here as a resource to the companies that come in to do these clinical trials. So we provide a lot of support and information on the disease, um, help in recruiting for clinical trials, education to the community on what trials are open, why the trials are done in, in the ways they are, helping develop outcome measures, providing information on natural history as comparators and things like that as well. So that's kind of the role that we, we have now. And it seems like it's a, it's a very critical role for this model of getting companies to, to come into the field to provide these supporting resources. The fourth arm of research you invest in is in clinical care. What does that include? Have you yeah. seen payoffs there? Some, I think it's it's a it's an earlier stage that we're starting to build out now compared to the the, the drug research. Um, it's always something that we've looked at as it's important in its own right. Just if we can do anything now um, or in you know ten years ago that does improve care, whether it's nutrition, figuring out a good diet to to help SMA patients, physical therapy, things like that, um, scoliosis scoliosis surgery. Those things, if they can have an impact just to improve quality of life now, in the past, were good things to do. I think what we've looked at, though, and we, we knew this was coming, that with an approved therapy, we're not going to have a cure right away. That a cure is something in the future, and a cure is actually probably something that's more a combination of maybe a few therapies, but also therapies in combination with the best care possible as well. To get the best impact from a therapy, you've got to be taking care of the care aspects for SMA as well. And so it's kind of a combination that we see as being the ultimate answer. So we look at some of the work that we've already done to try to kind of figure out what is the standard of care as a first step. We're looking to kind of continue to improve in this area and collecting information, doing studies to improve the standard of care and looking at that as a critical component combined with therapies as well in the future. At the end of last year, uh, Biogen and Ionis want approval for Spinraza, the, the first FDA-approved drug for SMA. 
20 years after the discovery of the SMA gene. This is a, an antisense drug. What does Spinraza do, and how significant a development does this represent? So it is, as you're saying, an antisense drug. So it's um, a piece of genetic material that basically works on the backup gene that I was talking about in SMA. So it makes this backup gene work better than it naturally would. Um, and so it, it kind of increases the amount of work, the amount of protein that this gene produces that's missing in SMA. Um, and what, so one of the very interesting things is this is something that's going in at the genetic cause of the disease, which I think we look at as, as really significant that we're going in for the cause rather than just focusing on symptoms. Um, it's being tested in quite a lot of clinical trials in a good variety of ages and patients with SMA and seems to have um, an impact across that spectrum. And I think that's something which we'd hope for, but we kind of expect as well that all patients with SMA have different copy numbers of this backup gene. So this mechanism should work for everybody. So that's, I think, exciting as well that we've got a therapy here that doesn't just work for a subsegment, a certain genetic mutation. It's going to work across the board for SMA. And I think that was reflected in what we saw from the FDA as well, that they looked at the data from the trials and the FDA gave us a really fantastic, very broad label for all ages, all types of SMA and no restrictions really at all. And so that was that was something very exciting to see. Now, what exact role did Cure SMA have in the development of Spinraza? Um, and so actually, it's it's very interesting because I think it, it touches on a lot of the, the steps that we're talking about all the way along. We actually funded some very early basic academic research at the University of Massachusetts, which actually came up with the sequence, this short genetic sequence that is Spinraza now. So at the very first early stages, developing this idea. Um, we then were involved in some of the later stages, especially with the clinical trials, helping recruit for the clinical trials, giving information for natural history comparisons, some of the outcome measures that were developed. Um, and I think even in the when we're talking about this care side, that's something that we've done in the past and we're involved with now that one of the critical things that we're focused on is access to this therapy and how do we have enough hospitals, enough clinical sites around the country to deliver this therapy to as many people as, as we can possibly get access for. And that's something which builds from this clinical trial network, clinical care center aspect as well, making sure that we have educated, trained, interested um, sites, hospitals and physicians in SMA and this therapy. And that's something that is kind of built up and is coming to kind of bear now as well. You mentioned earlier uh, the the therapeutic pipeline. I think you said there were five other SMA therapies in clinical development right now. Right now, yes, and then another um, eleven or twelve, I think, in earlier preclinical well, stages as well. How varied is the modality of these therapies? Are they targeting yeah. different targets? Are they going after the same targets? And and what what hope do you have for for their progression? Um. Very different targets. I think that's something that we did want to try and build, and it, it has come to bear as well. So there's certainly other therapies in development that also work on this backup gene, SMN2, although they have certain, they have different approaches. This is an antisense therapy. There's small molecules in developers, development as well for their backup gene. Broader than that, though, that we also have um, a gene therapy that's focused on the main missing SMN1 gene and replacing that, so a different approach. Then also we have therapies that are in development that focus not on the genetic side, but those later stages in the disease, looking at the nerves and the muscles. Um, there's a muscle therapy that's in development. And so I think it, it's coming at it from different angles, which spreads the risk around. But also this is our ultimate hope that if we can combine these different approaches together, 
the main gene, the backup gene, uh, nerve stabilization, and even muscle improvement. The combination of therapies is what's ultimately going to allow us to kind of build what we'd like to kind of label as the cure ultimately. Cure SMA has been at this longer than a lot of the disease groups that are around. What have you learned in terms of setting priorities and forming partnerships with academic or industry partners that has caused you to maybe to do things a little differently or better today? I think one of the angles behind it all is it's the strength of the family community that ultimately matters. It's keeping a tight community um, of patients, of families, people that are impacted by the disease, and especially for us, families that have lost as well, keeping that core community together, which really, I think, has so much impact on the research and on funding research, raising the funds for it, but then also getting clinical trials done correctly. And, and again, that's not a, so much a funding thing for us, but making sure that we have the right information on the disease, that we have people participating, really keeping one strong community together is what's allowed us to, to accomplish all that we have. And I think that's, that's a very difficult thing to do in a rare disease, um, especially in a disease where you've got this kind of big breadth of kind of the experience, different symptoms from type one to this adult onset type four, keeping that, that close community that we're one disease, we're the same genetic cause, keeping that together has been kind of crucial all the way throughout. And I think, um, it's probably not something that we, learned and changed over time, but it's something that became more obvious to us later on. It was always kind of the core of this organization, that we're about the community first and supporting each other. But I think we saw it really kind of play out in later years that that's really what triggered this amazing research progress in the end. And particularly for for other rare disease groups that might want to mimic your success and learn from it, I I think a lot are intimidated by the high cost of drug development. What, What would you tell them? It is expensive. I think that's why you need a strong community to work together to raise the funds that are needed. Um, it isn't something that ultimately you do have to see through or to the end of, because I think, yeah, they can be daunting when you see some of the clinical trial costs and what's involved in there. I think it's more if you can get the first stages, early stages done correctly, you will then incentivize the companies and the, the other resources, investors to come in for those very expensive stages later on. So you will have to do some investment. But if you can get the early basic research stages done right, if you can build the models, the animal models of the disease, get clinical trial networks in place, um, go about you know the basic research in a way that does incentivize translational work, it will it, it's feasible in the end to accomplish things like we've done building this model and ultimately getting an approved therapy. Kenneth Hobby, president of Cure SMA. Kenneth, thanks so much for your time today. No problem at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.